0: Well, we return to Romans chapter 12 today into a compelling passage regarding the spiritual attitudes the Lord has asked us to dress ourselves with. And as we said last time, this is really a call to spiritual self-awareness, a developing of a proper attitude, a proper view of yourself, a proper view of your weaknesses, a proper view of your limitations, and a proper view of your dependencies within the body of Christ. It's a call from the Apostle Paul for us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, as he says in verse 3. See yourself and your spiritual standing and your life properly, not through the eyes of your own pride, not through the eyes of your own mind, but appropriately. Appropriately. And this is the key proposal really for the whole section that runs throughout chapter 12, particularly as we've been looking in verses 3 through 8. And as we said last week, it is the chief evidence of a person who is fulfilling verse 2. That is to say, they're, they're not letting their mind be conformed to this world any longer, but they're being transformed through this renewal process. And one of the key places, maybe the chief place that that begins is a transformation through your understanding of your own sin and your own weakness. An understanding of God's grace and His forgiveness. This, another way to say it, is summarizes the key virtue that each one of us must develop, which is humility. Humility is the channel through which God will flow all of His other graces, the the channel through which every one of us will find ourselves being used by the Lord. If there is to be then any fruitfulness in our ministry, any lasting impact, any real eternal value, it will not be in our own natural capacities that we see ourselves in our own strength. It will be as we see ourselves And present ourselves and humble ourselves before the Lord. So this is a call for us to develop this kind of spiritual attitude. It's vital to the church. It's vital to any ministry. A low view of yourself, we might say. An eagerness to give all the glory to God. All the credit to other people around you. A reluctance to promote yourself. An embarrassment when commended. A contentment never to be recognized an eagerness to give the credit to God and to take none of it for yourself. Do not think, Paul says, too highly of yourself, but to think soberly. No more self-promoting, no more self-commending, no more self-will. All of those things set aside in the transformation and the renewal of our minds. Now to help us develop that pattern of thinking that Paul knows is so essential, he's presenting to us here different ways to measure ourselves, or different criteria you might say to develop this proper self-awareness and we saw the first one last week in verse 3 which is the grace that has been given to us or as Paul says at the end of verse 3 he wants us to think soberly as God has assigned to each one of us a measure of faith each one of us has been given a measure an allotment a gift of faith. And that comes to us, as we said, by grace. No one stands before God who has not received this as a gift. There are no Christians who are before God by their own doing, by their own merits, by their own intelligence, by their own worth. God has given to us the gift of, His, of, of our standing before Him. And He's given it to us equally. There are no favorites, is another way to say this. There are no believers who are more beloved. There are none who ought to think of themselves more highly than others, as God has assigned to each one of us the same measure of faith. Now, as we saw, this really kind of flowed out of a whole discussion in chapter 11 related to Jews and Gentiles, because within the church there was a, we might say, a racial bias from one group against the other, from Gentiles against Jews and maybe Jews against Gentiles where they looked at one another with some level of disdain or suspicion or just dislike. But it began to play itself out as it always does in every church with this level of competition for position, for power, for influence within the church which which Paul spells out here. As he transitions from this high mindedness in general to the specificity of our various ministries, our various ways of serving, our giftedness within the body of Christ, which is the second thing that Paul brings up, the second criteria of measurement that helps us develop this kind of proper self awareness or proper spiritual self awareness, and that is the group to whom we are created. If he wants us to understand the grace we've been given. He wants us equally to understand this group now that we are a part of, this group that we are interconnected with. As he says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. It's another way for us then to View ourselves properly and soberly, and that is to understand that we are members of one another. We're not isolated, we're not islands, we're not independent, we are dependent. There's an essential interconnectedness that you have with every other believer in this room that you have to value, that you have to guard, that you have to protect, that you have to pursue. And God has designed it that way. He's designed it so that we stand not only in need of Christ, but He's designed the church so that we stand in need of one another and the gifts that each one of us bring. Or we might say it this way, that one of the fundamental problems of those who think too highly of themselves is that they don't properly appreciate the contributions of others. They tend to maximize their own standing and their own gifts while at the same time minimizing the contributions and the gifts that others might bring. They may not think of themselves as completely independent, but they certainly think of themselves as clearly more important. And so Paul's emphasis here, is that we understand the many and the varied functions within the body of Christ as God has designed them, the necessary interrelationship that we have with one another, As, as it is with a body, a human body. Paul, of course, takes this even deeper when he expounds the same idea to the Corinthians and he says to them, quote, "...the body doesn't consist of one member but many." If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If all were a single member, where would the body be? In other words, you might imagine that you are the, the key cog, you might imagine that you are the end all of whatever ministry you're involved with, but... But Paul would tell us that you need everyone who is around you. In fact, you need to assess the value more properly that they bring to the table. Christ has made it so none of us can exist individually. And so in order for us to properly grow, if we're to grow at all in our spiritual life, we must be intimately connected to other Christians. We must be dependent on them. I mean, that alone is why it is so fallacious when people decide that they're just going to do home church. They're just, going to, they're just going to sort of worship God. And you hear this more and more out there. Well, the church is just Christians. It's not a building. It's not a location. It's not something that we you know, necessarily have to do together. Well, I mean, that would be the attitude of a high-minded person. One who thinks too highly of themselves, who doesn't see their dependency On the gifts that God has brought to others. God has designed the body so that each member contributes something necessary for the overall health of the body. And when it's not being contributed, or when the contribution is not being made, or when the contribution is not being received even, the body suffers. Any of you who've ever stubbed your toe knows this, right? Uh, You know, I always am amazed. I used to kind of chuckle to hear these high-paid professional athletes who are sitting out of a game for something called turf toe. I'm thinking, what? You're paid a million bucks and you can't get out there with a sore little toe? Until I seriously injured my toe one time and realized how worthless I was in so many endeavors. They understand that they can't contribute to the team because their toe can't contribute to their body. And how such a small member makes such a big difference when it's not making its adequate contribution. Well, Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand this interconnectedness. He wants us to to set aside the attitude towards others that they're not needed, that they're not necessary, or at least that they're not as necessary as you are. To think so highly of yourself, to think so highly of your contribution. That you don't properly assess the contributions of others. And the fundamental error in this kind of thinking is to imagine that whatever is happening through other people is not happening through Christ. To imagine that other people have been put around you in the body of Christ who are doing whatever they're doing in their own strength, in their own ingenuity, in in whatever their resources are, And so you have the prerogative to diminish those resources because you don't properly assess that those gifts and that ministry and that working is all happening through the power of Christ. It is His body and every member is supplied in its resources through Him. And so maybe perhaps the issue, really at its very core, is that you don't even look at what you're doing as dependent on Christ. You have begun to think about all the things that you do as some token or or some some, uh, acknowledgement of your particular inherent value. Rather than understanding all the value you have comes from Christ. But Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand that we exist as a body. And as a body, there are these There are these, uh, we might say, uh, characteristics within a church. There's a characteristic, obviously, of diversity. We are many, Paul says. And he says along the way, we do not all have the same function. There are many different functions, many different roles, and we do not do them all. We couldn't do them all. No single one of us has all of the roles. No single one of us should think so highly of ourselves. We shouldn't imagine that we are the one who must do everything. We have to appreciate that God's working through all the body. Which brings up the second, you might say, characteristic of a body is it has interdependency. As we said, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You have to have whatever... God has surrounded you with in your ministry, wherever you're serving, you have to have those who are serving alongside of you for the body to be healthy, for it to be complete, for it to be functional, for it to be effective. There's a need for each member, even for those members who are different from us. And we don't know how this was working out in the Roman church, but it most likely was working out along the natural, social, and racial lines that were dividing the church. If Jews were divided against Gentiles, if Gentiles were divided against Jews, if the rich were divided against the poor, if the educated against the uneducated, then they most likely would have been devaluing one another along those natural lines. But God wants us to understand the church in the same way we understand a body that every member must take care for one another, as he says to the Corinthians. We must value each other. He even talks about how how we put so much concern, he says to the Corinthians, to our less presentable parts, to cover them and to protect them, demonstrating in, in, we might say, a sort of ironic way, how valuable they are. And so we as a body have to see this This interconnectedness that we have with one another, which sort of highlights the third characteristic of a body is this tremendous unity. God has designed all of this amazing variety so that it works together in some harmonious unity that cannot be matched by all human ingenuity. We couldn't build a machine as complex and yet as efficient as the human body. We see all these contributions being made by all the various parts, and some of them, some of them even unconsciously, as our heart beats along the way all the time. We don't even think about it, but we, when we do, when we stop, when we, when we contemplate it, we realize we'd drop dead if this part of our body that we don't even give a thought to every day were to stop doing what it's supposed to do, or an individual artery or a vein not doing what it's supposed to do, we would drop dead. And yet we just chug along every day, going through our chores, going through our duties, dependent on each one of these elements. And yet God working every one of them, consciously and unconsciously, for the single unified purpose which we're pursuing. Each part of the body has a responsibility. And with each part of that body, it is handled better than any other part of the body would do it. There are people serving, doing things in the body of Christ who are doing things better than you could do them. You might imagine that you could do it better than everybody else, but that's not true. Christ has not given you the resources. He hasn't assigned that ministry to you, hasn't gifted you in that way, and so you need to appreciate that. Which really brings us to the third criteria of measurement that Paul wants us to develop if we're going to see ourselves properly, if we're going to have the spiritual self-awareness, which is the gifts we have been assigned, the gifts that we've been assigned. As Paul says in verse 8, having gifts that differ then according to grace given to us, let us use them. Use the gift that God has assigned to you. Serve in the area where God has equipped you. And by implication, don't try to serve in those areas where He's not assigned you. Be content with the role that God has given to you. And Paul emphasizes this by listing off seven spiritual gifts, basically telling us if we have that gift, serve with that gift. That's what he says here. There in verse uh, 6, he goes on, if you prophesy in proportion to our faith, if serving in our, if service in our serving, if the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts with mercy with cheerfulness. If you've been given a gift, do it. Serve in it with your full capacity. Appreciate the diversity of what God has surrounded you with, but don't imagine that you are the one who is supposed to do it all. Serve in the ministry where God has placed you. As I said, Paul emphasizes this by giving us this list of seven different areas of ministry, and the key point is simple. Serve where you're gifted. Don't try to operate in someone else's area of giftedness. Don't try to control all of these ministries that haven't been assigned to you by God. See, the problem with a person who thinks too highly of themselves is that they begin to think that they are gifted in everything. They begin to think that they are the ones who are supposed to be serving in all these areas. Maybe think that they are the only reliable voices in every context. Instead of appreciating how God has put the church together, the variety of ways that God has gifted the church through others, and they imagine that the church may very well survive without them, but they couldn't survive without me, right? Well, Paul's answer is you need to appreciate what God has called you to do, you need to serve where God has called you, where you're clearly gifted. And keep your focus there. And he does it, as I said, said, naming these seven gifts, these seven areas of ministry. It's not exhaustive by any means. In fact, we could compare this with other lists of spiritual gifts that are given in 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter chapter 4. And you could come up with a whole whole slew of of categories. Some people have identified as many as 21 that are named in the New Testament. But really, I, I don't think of these as individual gifts as much as I think about them as categories of giftedness. Because really, in every context, in every situation, the the idea is for us to depend on the Lord for whatever we need, and then He's going to supply us for whatever ministry He's put in front of us. And some of those ministries will be broadly teaching ministries, but that teaching may not be always from a pulpit or from a podium. It might be in a one-on-one setting or a small group or even a writing ministry. And some of us will be called to serve, and some of that will be uh, with backbreaking breaking uh, and, and exerting muscular influence, and some of that will be simply being there, just, just simply handing out a, a brochure, standing. And each one of us is equipped in different ways to do whatever is necessary. So serving doesn't always look the same, teaching doesn't always look the same, exhorting doesn't always look the same, mercy doesn't always look the same. But we should think about these in these broad categories of of gifts or probably a better way to say is broad categories of ministry. Sometimes I, I fear that by talking about gifts, we're putting too much emphasis on our own individual attributes. That's not really not the focus of the New Testament. The focus of the New Testament is not our attributes, but on our dependency. God has placed you in some area of Responsibility. Depend on Him to carry out that responsibility. So Paul names, we might say, seven ministries. And the first one that he mentions here is the ministry of the prophet. He says, if, if we need to minister according to the, the grace given to us, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. This is the first one. We don't know why Paul listed, it, but but it was one that was active in the early church, this ministry of prophets. They served as the voice of God to the people, just like in the Old Testament, the prophets served as the voice of God to the people of God. And this was necessary in the early days of the church, before the New Testament was written, before there was explicit instruction from God in the writing of the apostles, Before all of that had been written and circulated throughout the church, God provided within local congregations and for that temporary period of time, the ministry of prophets. Prophets who appear to have now passed away from the church as the completion of the New Testament came. These, as I said, were like Old Testament prophets who served specific needs. You see in the Old Testament prophets, for example, like Samuel, who were involved in the selection and the appointment of leaders within Israel, or confronting of sins like Nathan when he had to confront David, or prophets who were involved with direction on key decisions like Isaiah, or Prophets who were given ministries of warning like Jeremiah or Jonah or ministries of hope like the minor prophets or exhortation to trust where you see this again and again from the prophets in the Old Testament urging God's people to rely on God and not to turn to foreign alliances. And this is the way that you see the ministry working out in the New Testament. Prophets doing very similar things. We hear about the appointment of leadership by prophetic utterance in Timothy's life. Or you see the confrontation of sin or warnings coming from prophets like Agabus. Or you see the direction that's given from, from prophets in the, in the city of Antioch in Acts 13. The appointment of, of missionaries there. You even see Paul exercising a prophetic ministry on a ship in Acts 27 whenever people were despairing for their life and he told them to trust in God. Exhortations to trust. So you see prophets doing the same thing they've always done because prophetic ministry has been active at various times in various places throughout the history of God's people. These prophets would have operated perhaps much like apostles, but not in a universal way. Apostles had authority over many churches, all churches, whereas prophets appeared to be rather localized and specific to their area. But a prophet would have been given supernatural knowledge into situations. Supernatural understanding. That's why whenever the Soldiers were beating Jesus. They had blindfolded him and they said to him, Prophesy and tell us which one of us hit you. That was their understanding of prophecy. It was somebody with supernatural knowledge. So the gift of prophecy with this miraculous knowledge given for specific direction to the church. And Paul says, When a prophet speaks, they need to do so in proportion to our faith. Speaking about himself as a prophet into proportion to the faith that God has given to us. When God reveals something to you, you need to say something. When when He gives you, we might say, a word of knowledge, you need to believe it and you need to speak it. This is what happened on that ship in Acts 27, whenever they were tossed around in a storm for many days, and along the way were told that they had to undergird the ship with straps because they were so afraid the ship would be broken apart and they began to toss out the cargo sea to lighten the ship, to lift it up from the, the bottom so it didn't scrape along the, 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 the reefs. And he, he tells them eventually after several days of all of these efforts, Paul stood up in Acts 27 verse 22, he says, I urge you, talking to the whole crew, I urge you to take heart for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've told you. So here's Paul. He receives a vision from the Lord, and then he has to exercise faith in that vision to have the boldness in the face of of impossible circumstances to be able to stand before people and say this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it's going to happen. And so Paul's calling on prophets to do that. Exercise the gift with faith. Believe the things the Lord has revealed to you. He's not calling them to be presumptuous. He's not calling on them to go out and speak when they haven't been spoken to. That was... The condemnation of the Lord so many times in the Old Testament, pseudo-prophets, false prophets who went out and spoke when the Lord had not spoken to them. In fact, they were blasphemous prophets. Deuteronomy 18 says such a prophet ought to be killed. They ought to be stoned. Paul even uh, admonishes us in the New Testament not to receive the words of a prophet without testing it. You say, well, what's the test? Well, uh, Deuteronomy 18 says this is the test. When a prophet speaks, if it doesn't come true, he's he's not a true prophet. Pretty simple. Because God, when He speaks, He speaks truth. He speaks infallibly. So for a prophet to speak and say, Thus saith the Lord, he has to be 100% accurate. But when he does speak, he needs to exercise faith. He needs to believe. and He needs to speak boldly. Secondly, Paul mentions a gift of service. He says, If, if service in our serving." So, if you are a servant, if God has granted you that ministry, then do it, basically. The word is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon or deaconess. These were the official offices in the early church that were established along the way. People who were gifted in serving in many ways in the church were given sometimes official capacities, sometimes not. But they were called the servants of the church. It's really a pretty broad category since there are so many ways that you can serve in the church. But one of the ways we see it working out in the early church was in Acts 6 where the church simply needed people for the daily distribution of food to needy widows in Jerusalem. And it was a logistical challenge to get food from the people who had prepared it to all those people who needed it when by that time the church in Jerusalem had grown to more than 10,000 people. And so the church desperately needed servants or deacons to help with the officiating of this. And there would have been all kinds of people who were involved with the process, as we said, some of them preparing, some of them just carrying and delivering. But they needed some people who would oversee the whole process, and these people became involved in the operation of this through the Lord in an area of service. The purpose there in Acts 6 was primarily to free up the apostles who were supposed to be devoting more attention, more time to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they understood rightly that if they allowed themselves to be drugged down into all the nitty-gritty task of all these acts of service, it would have a negative impact on the church. It would have a negative impact on their prayer life, a negative impact on their time of studying, a negative impact on their time of discipling and teaching, and ultimately a negative impact on their effectiveness. And so the gifts that were... They were given to come alongside these teaching gifts to relieve the burdens from them were gifts of service. And they would continue to function in these service gifts. Paul even talks about it later on in his life. Second Timothy 1, he speaks about Onesiphorus who often refreshed him while he was serving in prison. Or he writes to Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus who served and refreshed him. People who come alongside, who work behind the scenes. And yet they are indispensable to the overall effectiveness of the ministry. The difficulty is that they are behind the scenes. That they don't always enjoy the, the satisfaction of being publicly acknowledged or maybe even always publicly appreciated. But what they do is important. And they have to do it out of the earnestness of their love for Christ and their desire to see the gospel go forth, moving obstacles out of the way so that those who teach, those who preach, those who serve in those ways can give their full attention to the teaching. Paul also mentions the gift of teaching. That's the third gift that he mentions. As I said, it is a companion to the gift of service. Both the teachers and those serving must understand the vital roles that they play in each other's lives and both must resist the temptation to want to cross over into each other's area of service. Not out of some concern for territorialism, not out of some attitude, hey, this is my ministry. That's not what Paul is really getting at. But like the apostles in Acts 6, 6, out of a, a sense of effectiveness. Paul says that the one who teaches needs to exercise his gift. He needs to serve in his gift. He needs to serve in his teaching. And don't try to do what everyone else does. Teach. Dedicate your heart to it so that you can do it effectively. And then Paul adds in in verse 8, the one who exhorts in exhortation, parakaleo. We translate that sometimes the comforter or the helper, maybe even the counselor. And Paul's probably referring to those people who, we might say, have counseling ministries. They come alongside of someone in the midst of a struggle, encouraging those who lose heart. And again, Paul's telling them, serve in your area of ministry. If you have a ministry of encouragement, encourage. If you have a ministry of exhortation, exhort. Be content with the ministry where the Lord has given you. Realize the vital role that it plays in the overall body of Christ. It is one of those many and varied functions without which the entire body could not operate. It would be so bogged down by the discouragement, by the perplexity, by the confusion that is out there in people's hearts and minds if we didn't have all of the people who are, who are operating in this way bringing the kind of, of, of encouragement and clarity and help and exhortation that's needed. Paul mentions also the gift of giving. The one who contributes, he says, should do so in generosity. That is, do it to the extent of the capacity that God has given to you. Do it generously, not in a paltry way. This is just a a gift that God gives, and when He gives, He gives you resources to carry it out. As He says to the Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you might abound in every good work. If God has given you the gift of giving, He will give you the resources to be able to give. And so this is a a gift that often comes to those with abundant resources. It's certainly not limited to wealthy people, but if you are one of those, you are one of those that God has given resources to for the purpose of giving. And as the old saying goes, you cannot outgive God. He's given you those resources. He supplied those resources. You give those resources, He'll supply more. And you'll always uh, abound, He says, with everything you need to do every good work that God has presented to you. So the gift of giving, He says, needs to be done generously. Abundantly. As God has richly provided for you. You see examples of this as well in the New Testament. A man like Barnabas who the Lord had given property to. He had apparently lots of property and when a need came up, he sold a tract of land and he brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet and the money in turn was used to provide for the needs of discipleship. It was discipleship because so many people had come to know Christ on the day of Pentecost and they'd come from all over the world, literally, and in order for them to be discipled, They couldn't go back home. There were no churches wherever they came from. The only way was for them to be housed and for them to be fed and for them to be provided for in Jerusalem. And so there was a massive need that arose to provide the needs for all these people so that they could ultimately be taught in the Lord. And everyone contributed generously to the effort, we're told. But it couldn't have happened had it not been for the particular ministry of those who had the gift of giving. And we're able to give in these generous ways. And so Paul tells them here, if that is how the Lord has equipped you, then continue to do it generously. Serve in your area. Realize what God has equipped you to do. He also adds there in verse 8, those who lead, those who administrate. They need to do it with diligence, with zeal. It's a word literally for standing in front of other people. And it refers to the one who stands in front, basically giving direction to others. This isn't the person who is directly involved in a particular task. That might be more the ministry of serving. This has to do with organizing them, with leading them. The skill of And the ability to take all the various talents and the gifts throughout the body and unite them toward the accomplishment of a specific task. God has equipped some of you in that way. And your role is to come alongside and to take these complex, these complicated things and to figure out how to bring them about in a cohesive and a a smooth operational way. The key ingredient, Paul says, is diligence or zeal. Because, as those of you who serve in this way understand, one of the biggest uh, tasks involved with this is simply understanding the problem to begin with, climbing in taking all the component parts, if you will, out so that you can see exactly the way everything operates, so that you can see exactly how the problem needs to be attacked. It takes a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous amount of diligence. People imagine sometimes leadership is just doling out tasks to other, every, everyone else. They, they throw, out, throw out the word delegation like it is some uh, just simple Switch that you flip and an whole organization begins to operate. But too often, that's a recipe for discouragement and failure. Whenever you just start assigning tasks when they're not even the most effective task, nor are they most effectively done by that person, they're not equipped or they're not even gifted. And they're not even given the resources to do what they need to do. And so they just get frustrated in ministry because somewhere there's a failure of someone to apply the kind of diligence to understand the problem that is in front of us and to unwrap that thing and to break it apart in all of its component parts and to be able to understand all the pieces that need to go into making it work. So a leader needs to apply diligence, thinking through these complex situations, spending the time... Understanding all the various and sometimes even the competing interests and coming up with workable solutions and implementing those by putting the skilled people in the various places that they need to be. Tremendous investment of time and mental capital. It takes zeal. It takes diligence. And Paul says you need to apply that. And then finally, he mentions the gift of mercy the one who does acts of mercy do it with cheerfulness. This is the person who brings through his words, through sometimes even his presence, particular comfort to the distressed and the people in misery and grief and pain. The person who labors to relieve the burdens of those who are going through times of difficulty to whatever extent that you can, is particularly associated with physical ailments and distresses, even persecution within the New Testament. We might even say emotional distress. But these are the kind of people who God has gifted, first of all, with the time Understanding that sometimes it is just simply an investment to walk with someone through the long journey of this distress. Or sometimes just the words. The the intuition to know what to say and when to say it. Epaphroditus was probably one of these people. Paul says in Philippians 2, he ministered to me in my distress. Dorcas was another one in Acts 9. Who abounded with deeds of kindness and grace to those who were afflicted. Until she died, Peter came and the Lord miraculously raised her from the dead. And the people who had received her acts of kindness and love through the years were so overjoyed to receive her back because of her acts of mercy that they suddenly were open to hear the preaching of the gospel through Peter. And that's the way it often works. These people who operate in gifts of mercy or ministries of mercy are in many ways the avenues that open up the preaching of the gospel. Paul says you need to do this and do it with a joyful spirit. You have to do that because when you work in this kind of ministry, it's so easy to be crushed under the many griefs and the many pains associated with this fallen world, you see difficult situation after difficult situation. If your theology is not right, if you don't understand us appropriately all that the Lord has taught us in the gospel, that you will be crushed in your spirit and unable to operate. So he says, if you have a gift of mercy, do it. Serve in that way. God has given you that special gift. And if you're bowed down and weighed down because of all the burdens, refresh your own heart in the gospel again and again and go back to your task with a cheerfulness. The church needs you. The ministry needs you. It can't operate without you. That's Paul's ministry. I mean, that's Paul's message, excuse me. We have to see the body that way. We have to see our role that way. We have to see one another that way. We can't go around. It doesn't matter if we stand in front of people or if we're never seen by people. It doesn't matter if we're well recognized in the world or we're unrecognized in the world. It doesn't matter if we're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if we're like the person or unlike the other person. It doesn't matter. We have to see every person who is here among us as being placed here among us and having a contribution that you and I cannot make. And God has placed them in the body, he tells the Corinthians. Just as he sees fit. So don't think so highly of yourself. You are not the ultimate solution. I am not the ultimate solution to every problem that this church has. You're not the ultimate answer to every deficiency. You're not the one who is most gifted in every area. But you're gifted in some area, you're fruitful in something. Be content. Pour your heart into that. Serve in that ministry. And appreciate all the ones that the Lord has surrounded you with and contribute to your life. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we are grateful that you have granted us one another. These are precious gifts that are around us, precious people. And you have built this church with them, having given them and equipped them with the resources that they have to bring us to where we are. You will add to us gifts in the future as we need them. Help us, Lord, to not imagine ourselves as the ultimate answer to any of those needs, but to see you and the ones that you send along the way who can minister to the church and minister to us. We need that perspective, Lord. We need to not think so highly of ourselves. But to understand that wherever we are, however we serve, we serve by your resources. And those who serve around us are equally equipped by your majestic and all-sufficient power. And so we'll magnify you just as we are grateful for them. And we see you using them throughout the body.